Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. Today, we begin a series on the seven churches of Revelation that were located in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. If you can, please turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 2 as John begins this series with his message, How Strong is Your Love for Jesus? I want to make four statements about the church, and I can make them quickly. Remember this, number one, Jesus Christ is the one who built the church. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Notice he didn't say, I will build your church. Neither did he say, you will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And so Jesus is the architect and the builder of the church. Statement number two, while Jesus built the church, the church was actually born on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came down. That was the birthday of the church. Another statement I would make about the church, the church is not the buildings. The church is the people. You are the church and I am the church. Remember the Greek word ekklesia? That is the Greek word from which we get our English word church. And it literally means the called out ones. In other words, God has called us out of darkness. He has called us out of the world to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to follow him all the days of our lives. And so the church is the people. If we were having services today on the baseball field, the the church would be on the baseball field. The church would not be in these buildings. And then the other thing I would say by way of of opening up today about about the church, and that is the church has been around for 2,000 years And the church of Jesus Christ will be here until we are raptured up and taken to heaven. While it is sadly true that in America, church attendance, people's commitment to the church, it's on the decline. And as you study the history of the church, there's been persecution, there have been times of decline, there have been times of growth. But the church will be here until Jesus comes back because he said that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against the church. Now, as we come to Revelation chapters 2 and 3, what we have here are seven different churches that actually existed in the first century in modern-day Turkey known as Asia Minor then, the smaller part of Asia. And the first of these churches is the church at Ephesus. Of all seven churches, the church at Ephesus was the most prominent church of all. We have good reason to believe from the New Testament that the Apostle Paul founded this church. Timothy, his associate, Uh, pastored the church after Paul had pastored the church. And then a man named Tychicus, who was another one of Paul's companions, had also pastored that church. And if that's not good enough, the apostle John had himself pastored the church at Ephesus. In fact, it was while John was in Ephesus pastoring this church that he was arrested for his faith and witness of Jesus Christ, he was taken to an island known as Patmos off the Aegean Sea, and he spent years there, and that's where he wrote the book of the Revelation from his imprisonment on that island. The first church that he wrote to was the church at Ephesus. Now, as I think about the church at Ephesus, I would say it this way. It was a great church facing great challenges. 
It was a great church, first of all, because of its history, the men who had pastored that church. It was a great church also because for over 40 years, that church had been a witness for Jesus Christ. But it was a great church facing great challenges. The people in Ephesus, the Christians there, faced many of the same challenges that we face today. And namely, it is this, they were living in a secular, godless society. We think we're the first generation, the first group of Christians to try to reach people who are living in a secular society who doesn't believe the Bible and who rejects Jesus Christ, but we're not. In Ephesus, while they were known for many things, the thing they were most known for was a huge temple that they had built for the Roman mythological god Diana. It was a huge temple. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana. And so the people in Ephesus, the majority of them, would go to this temple. She was the god of the hunt. And they would worship her, and they would pray that God would provide food for them. And, and here they are worshiping in that. And so here you have Paul, and then Timothy, and Tychicus, and the Apostle John, and, and these other Christians there at the church in Ephesus. And, and they're preaching a different message. They're saying, wait a second. We don't believe that Diana is even real. We don't believe a, a myth. It's, it's mythology. It's Roman mythology. We don't believe in, in her. We believe in the God of heaven and earth. We believe in the God of the Bible. We believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And we believe that it's only through repentance of sin and faith in Christ that we can go to heaven and be with God when we die. That's what those guys were preaching. And yet they were in the minority because most of the people were working and worshiping at that temple of Diana. And so I say of Ephesus what I say of the church in Pasadena and what I say of many churches in America. Listen, we are a great church with a great history. We've been around for over 120 years. Our church has had five different locations during those 120 years. You study the men who have pastored these churches, the, the leaders who have gone before us, godly men, godly people who preached the Bible and lifted up Jesus Christ. So yes, in that sense, we can say from a historical perspective, we're a great church. We're three times older than the church at Ephesus was. They've been around 40 years. We've been around 120 years. And yet, we, like they, face great challenges. We are living in what some have called a post-Christian culture. That can be reversed, by the way, but currently there is truth in that. We're living in a secular world. We're living in a day where people are, are less receptive to the gospel. They're more antagonistic about the Bible, and they're, they're saying that we need to update the Bible and, and get it in the, in the modern world. And what we're saying is we need to take the modern world back to the day of the Bible and put ourselves under the authority of what God has given us in His written Word. Now, as we study and read about this church in Ephesus in chapter number 2, there are four statements that I want to build my message around today. And so if you're a note taker, this will be right down your alley because these are the truths that I get as I have read and studied this passage and thought about it. This is what jumps off the page to me. Statement number one, here's what Jesus is saying to this church. And by the way, before I get into this, if you have a Bible that puts the words of Christ in red letters, you will notice that all of chapter 2 and all of chapter 3 are in red letters. Because Jesus is the one speaking to these churches. John's writing it down. But Jesus is the one speaking. And here's what first, the first thing Jesus says to the church at Ephesus is, I am with you. The first thing Jesus says to the church in Pasadena today is this, I am with you. 
You're not alone in this secular world that you're living in. I'm with you. Verse number 1 of chapter 2. To the angel of the church of Ephesus. Now, let me comment on that. We read the angel. We wonder, was there an angel on staff at that church? Was there an angel who was an usher or greeter at that church? No. The Greek word here is translated messenger. Sometimes it can be an angel. Sometimes, though, it refers to the pastor who was leading that congregation. That man was the messenger of God. And that's what it's talking about here. That could just as easily read to the angel or to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. These things, says he, who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, it's been a while since in our study of Revelation we read about the seven stars and the seven golden lampstands. What is that? Look back at the end of chapter 1 and verse 20. Jesus explains that. He's already explained it. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or the messengers or the pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying to the pastors of these churches, I have you in my hand. Now, you listen to that today and you think, well, good for the pastor. Because Jesus has a pastor in his hand. Well, I'm not the pastor. Well, I say the same thing. I'm not the pastor. I'm the assistant pastor. My father's the pastor. I read that and say, well, good for my dad because he's in Jesus' hand. But do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, all of us who have been saved have been placed in his hand. And then if that's not enough, God the Father has placed his hand over Christ's hand. And so we're doubly secure and doubly blessed. We are in the hands of Jesus, and we are in the hands of God the Father. Now, a pastor who's leading a church has a special protection and a special anointing to do what God has called him to do. But he's not the only one who's in God's hands. All of us who are saved are in God's hands. And these seven golden lampstands are the seven churches themselves. And Jesus said, I'm walking in the midst of the churches. One of the things I I love about God and I love about the church and I love about preaching and coming together in worship is that while we're singing these songs of praise to God, while we're studying God's Word together, even though we cannot see Him, Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit is walking and moving up and down these aisles, in and out these pews, taking what is being taught from the Word of God and applying it and making it real to our lives. And so the first thing we need to remember is that Jesus is with us and we are not alone. Now the second thing, as I think about this passage, the second thing Jesus is saying to these churches, not only am I with you, But Jesus is saying to the church at Ephesus, and he's saying to us today, I know what you have done for me. Sometimes we feel like we try to do something for God, and nobody even knows it. Between services, I heard a man say, you know what? I remember one time I went and visited somebody in a prison a long way from here. And he said, I just sometimes wonder, did anything come of that? Or did anybody even remember that? And I thought of this passage. I thought, yes. God remembers. Look in verse number two. Notice what Jesus said to these Christians. He said, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Now look in verse six. He said, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, 
The Nicolaitans were a group of people who lived in the first century. They claimed to be Christians, but here was their message. Since we live in the age of grace, since grace covers everything, it doesn't really matter what we do because God will forgive us anyway. And so they just taught behavior didn't matter. You're covered by God's grace, and they perverted the grace of God. And Jesus didn't agree with that. That's certainly not right. And the, creep, the Christians in Ephesus had rejected that teaching. But as I, as I read those verses, verses 2, 3, and 6, and I started thinking about all the things that Jesus said he knew about these Christians in Ephesus, I came up with several categories. You might want to jot this down and listen to this. Here's what Jesus was saying he knew about these Christians. He was saying, I know that you're hard workers. I know that you persevere when you're going through a hard time. I know that you do that. I know that you have taken a strong stance against sin. And we should all be against sin in our own lives and in, in, in a society. But there are some people who think that here's what it means to be a Christian today. Just run around and denounce sin. Well, you know, before you denounce somebody else's sin, we better judge our own hearts and make sure. But, but these people were against sin. Jesus was glad that was good. We should all be against sin. And then Jesus said, I notice that you're spiritually discerning. You hear people saying things that aren't true, and you have the gift of discernment. Jesus said this about him. I also know that you want God to get the glory. You're doing all these things for my name's sake. You're not trying to make a name for yourself. You're doing it for me. And then Jesus said, I notice that you're strong. You don't grow weary. You don't give up when the going gets tough. People turn against you. You keep moving forward. So Jesus said these things about these Ephesian Christians. And yet after, I mean, think about this. If, if Jesus appeared to you today and Jesus said to you, I've been watching you live your life for the last few years. I've, everything you've done at church and in the community and with your family, I've been paying attention. And I have noticed that you're a hard worker. You're down at the church. You, you take your job seriously. If it's teaching Sunday school or being an usher or a greeter or whatever it might be, you take it seriously. I've noticed not only that, when, when things get tough, you don't give up. You don't quit. You keep moving forward. You, you're against sin. You've taken your stand, and that's a great thing. You have discernment. You want me to get the glory. You're not full of pride and ego. You want it to be about me, and, and you don't grow weary. You're strong. Listen, if, if I thought Jesus might say half of that to me, I would feel so good and think, man, Jesus is, is saying these positive words of affirmation to me. And I, I, would, I would feel like my life had been lived in the right way. But as we come to verse number four, Jesus makes the third statement to this church in Ephesus. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, even though you're doing all the right things, I have noticed that your heart for me has grown cold. Look at it. Verse number four. Nevertheless, some of your translations say, but or yet. Mine says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Talking about a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Now notice, he did not say you have lost your first love. He didn't say you've lost your salvation. You can't lose eternal life. Sometimes a person will say, well, I've committed some sin, adultery or murder or something really bad, and, and I think that, that now I've, I'm, I'm no longer saved. I think I need to get saved again. I've lost my salvation. Friend, you can't lose eternal life. Think about it. If, if salvation is eternal life, and that's what it is, how long does eternal life last? It lasts eternally. 
So if you could lose it, it wasn't eternal. It was temporary. Jesus didn't say, you've lost your first love. What did he say? He said, you have left your first love. Even though you're doing all the right things, here's what he was saying. Your heart's not in it. As I was preparing this, I came across a quote from Greek scholar, New Testament scholar Warren Wiersbe. Two statements. It just gripped my heart. Here's what he said. He said, labor is no substitute for love. And then he said, purity is no substitute for passion. Now, should we labor and work for God? Yes, but it's no substitute for love. Should we pursue purity in our lives? Yes, we should, but purity is no substitute for passion. And what Jesus was saying to this church at Ephesus and what Jesus is saying to many today is, you're laboring, you're working hard for me, you're pure, I don't have anything against you, but here's the problem I have with you. Here's the observation that I have made. You have left your first love. You're not doing it out of a heart full of love for me. You're doing the right thing because you know it's right, but you're not doing it because you have a heart full of love for me. Now, the next statement that Jesus made, here's what he said. First of all, he said, I know that you're, you're doing the right things, but your heart has grown cold. You don't love me like you used to love me. But he says this, there's a way to get your fire back. Now, I'm glad Jesus didn't just stop telling them how they had left their first love. Jesus said, if your love for me has grown cold, there's a way for that passion to come back. There's a way for that fire to return. There's a way for Bible reading and prayer and and going to church to be exciting again. And in verse number five, Jesus gives us the steps that we need to take. Let me read the verse and then I'll comment on it. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent And do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Three words out of that verse that applies to all of us during those times in life when our passion is waned and our love for God has grown cold. Word number one is remember. That's what Jesus said. Remember from whence you have fallen. Remember what? Remember how excited you were when you first got saved. You remember when you first got saved? Or for a guy like me, John, remember what it was like that night when you came to the full assurance of your salvation and you didn't have to doubt or worry or wonder. You knew your sins were forgiven. You knew Jesus was living in your heart and you knew that heaven was your home. Man, I couldn't get enough of the Bible. I couldn't get enough of praying. I couldn't get enough of telling my buddies, whether I was at the gym or whether I was wherever, that, that Jesus Christ had given me a peace that I never thought I would have. Jesus said, remember that. Remember what it was like. And he says, number two, repent. What do you mean, repent, Jesus? What is it that you have stopped doing that you used to be doing when you had that fire in your bones? I think some people come to church and they say, well, you know, when it's all over with, if I got anything out of it, then maybe I'll go back next week. And if I didn't, then maybe I won't. You don't go to church because of what you get out of it. Although if you come and pay attention, you will always get something out of it. You go to church because it is the right thing to do. Amen. We're such a consumer culture. Even a church is what can I get out of it? Friend, We are here to worship God. It is not what can I get out of it. It is what do I bring to it. And I'm telling you this. Every day if you'll read your Bible, every day if you'll pray, every day if you'll witness however 
that doesn't mean you're leading somebody to get saved every day. It'd be great if it did. Doesn't mean that. And every day or every week, if you'll go to church, I'm going to tell you this. It will be hard for your fire for God to go out in an environment like that. It will. And so Jesus said, repent. And then he says, do the first works. That is, return. Do those things that I just mentioned. And then the fourth thing Jesus said, we get this down in verse number seven. He says, refocus your attention off of earth and on to heaven. Here's the problem with many of us. We're spending too much time thinking about earthly things when we ought to be thinking about heavenly things. Now look in verse number uh, seven. Jesus said, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Jesus is saying, he's talking about heaven. He's saying, your heart's grown cold. One of the reasons it's grown cold is you're too earthly minded. You're thinking too much about your bank account and your job and your boat and your car and your vacation and your trip and your sports and, 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 and your friends. And you're thinking too much on earth. Put your mind on heaven. What did Jesus say in the Sermon Mount? Where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. See, when you tithe, you're giving part of your treasure to God. Your heart's in heaven because your mind's in heaven. Your treasure is in heaven. Now, I want to make two statements. Number one, loving God is more important than serving God. Number two, loving God is the prerequisite for serving God. Remember after Simon Peter sinned? I mean, you talk about... A biggie, he denied that he knew Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. I don't know the man. Peter, what are you saying? He thought, oh man, what have I done? He felt horribly about it. He wept. He quit the ministry. And he went back into the fishing business. And several weeks after the resurrection, Jesus left Jerusalem went to the north in Galilee by the little uh, Lake Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, where Peter was fishing. Jesus said, I can't go back to heaven until I first restore Peter to the ministry. He said, Peter, I want to ask you a question. He asked the same question three times. He said, do you love me? And Peter said, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, then feed my sheep. I reinstitute you into the ministry. You're not uncalled. You're not disqualified. You messed up, but my grace is sufficient and my blood can wash it away. And as long as I know, and as long as you know that you love me with all your heart, out of the overflow of that love, you can spend the rest of your life serving me. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, and I'm glad he was because it applies to all of us. He was saying, loving God is more important than living a perfect life. And I'm glad about that because is anybody here who, 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 who has lived a perfect life? No. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if we receive God's forgiveness and love him with all of our hearts, he can do some fantastic things through our lives. Amen. With our heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to give somebody in this room a chance to get saved. You say, John, my heart for God's not cold. My heart for God is dead. I've never received spiritual life. I've never been born again. I have no hope of heaven and no peace when I lay on my bed at night. That can all be changed if you'll pray this prayer and trust Christ to answer it. Say, Lord Jesus, 
forgive my sins. Come into my heart and make me a Christian. I ask you to save me. I trust you to do it. Amen. For those of you who have prayed to receive Christ as your Savior today, we would love to know about it and to rejoice with you in your decision. In fact, the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven are rejoicing over your new life in Christ. Please let us know about your decision by sending us an email to info at peacebybelieving.org or by giving us a call at 1-800-337-0157. Again, that's 1-800-337-0157. We hope that today's message has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with many others, on our website, peacebybelieving.org, under the broadcast tab. Thank you for joining us today, and we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.